Wrong Turns podcast. Thanks for joining us. As always, I am your host, Audrey Lee Hickman-Hunter. The No Wrong Turns podcast talks to people about their story and their passions. It aims to see how their passions have evolved and grown throughout their story. Hey friends, what have you been doing to enjoy the spring season? Over here in Chicago, the spring weather just keeps teasing us. This past weekend, I was helping my husband harvest some mint over at his garden, and even though it was 60 degrees out, kind of breezy, I came home and discovered I had gotten a sunburn. And then yesterday, it decided to have a little monsoon over here, and we had a little flooding situation in our storage area in the basement. So today we had a grand old time of cleaning it out and reorganizing that basement situation. Have you all been working on some projects at home? We want to hear all about your home projects over on our Instagram or Facebook pages. Listeners, this is our 14th episode. Today on the podcast, we have Lynn Power. Lynn is a longtime ad agency executive with a love for beauty. She's been fortunate to work on many iconic brands, including the Gillette Venus Global Marketing Launch, Clinique Global, L'Oreal Natural Match Launch, and St. Ives. She has done lots of other categories as well, including American Express, Hershey's, Campari, Nestle. Lynn loves building teams and reinventing cultures and disruption. Today on the podcast, Lynn will share her story about how she began her advertising career due to her speedy typing skills, and how from her first position in the advertising world, how she then was able to use that experience as a springboard to excel to work in several other ad agencies. Then, now she's shifting to become an entrepreneur using her advertising and brand building expertise and her role as co-founder of Masami. Lynn will share how she found out about Masami and how her involvement grew into her becoming Masami's co-founder. You are for sure going to want to lean in and not miss hearing about how Lynn discovered her passion and began developing and began developing it through hard work and how she grew in her experience. No matter if this is your story and you can relate to her or not, I believe that there is something in this episode for you. All right, here's my conversation with Lynn. Welcome to the No Wrong Turns podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Lynn Power from Masami. She is the CEO, but she's going to tell us a little bit more about her story and about her passion. So welcome to the podcast, Lynn. Thank you so much. So where are you speaking to us from? So I'm actually right now in the Berkshires, but I really am a New Yorker, having lived in New York for 25 years, but I grew up in Chicago. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So you grew up in Chicago. Do you have a family or any kids? Yes, I have (laughs) two amazing children, two teenagers. I have a son who's 18 and a daughter who's 16, and they keep me very busy and challenged all the time. They're amazing. Awesome. So you said you grew up in Chicago. So can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up so the listeners can get to know your foundation a little bit more? Yeah, so I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I grew up in a place called Park Ridge, Illinois. It's actually where Hillary Clinton went to high school. (laughs) Oh, that's a good fun fact. Little fun fact there, exactly. Of course, we're not the same age, even though I am old. I am 52. (laughs) So, you know, starting a business around this age has been interesting. And that's a whole probably different podcast for you. But yeah, I think I grew up in an area that was pretty insulated. And I will say, you know, I went to school in the Midwest as well. I went to Indiana University, which is where my son goes now. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to New York, it was kind of eye-opening for me. I love the diversity. I love just the the thinking, you know. It was um, it felt very liberated. Um, and I also felt like once you go to New York, it's hard to leave because nothing else really feels as 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 exciting or as energetic or as interesting as New York. 
I met my husband. We um, met at work in Chicago and decided to move to New York. And we thought it was going to be like a two year stint. Right. And I always Mm -hmm. figured I'd go back to Chicago. My family's from Chicago. My brother and his family still live there. I'm super close to them. But like I said, it's just impossible to leave New York. (laughs) You know, it's like you get addicted. So that's what I was going to ask you. What brought you you guys to New York? Was it just a job transition or? Well, what happened was, so I met my husband at Ogilvy and Mather, which is one of the big advertising agencies Mm -hmm. in Chicago. And at the time, Ogilvy had won the IBM business, which was huge. And they were looking to staff up in New York. So my husband, we had just started dating. He raised his hand and said, hey, I want to go. And then he and I were like, well, I may as well go, too, because, you know, if you work in advertising, it's actually a great place to be. So my feeling was if it doesn't work out, then I'll have at least done that for my career and it'll be good for my career. And if Mm -hmm. it works out amazing, which it did. But, you know, we really thought it was going to just be you know, a couple years, get it under our belts, get the New York thing on the resume. And then, you know, again, here we are. (laughs) It's like 25 years have passed. Can I ask you really quick? So when you were in college, what did you major in advertising or? No, no, not at all. And I actually find it so difficult these days that kids are expected to have some inkling of what they want to do, even in high school. And that's, again, another podcast topic. My kids growing up in New York, the specialty schools are insane and they're supposed to have this idea and they don't. So I didn't know. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So when I went to school, I was a liberal arts major and I actually had a double major of English and criminal justice. Hmm. And I had this idea of I wanted to go into the FBI I was very Clarice Starling. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to go in the FBI or the NSA or do something like that. And I actually went through the whole process after I graduated of applying. But it was 19. Yeah, it was 1989. And there was a recession. Your podcast listeners won't remember this, but there was a recession. (laughs) Just trust me. It was around when we were born. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You were born. But trust me, there was a recession. And basically, you know, I had to go through the background check and everything was think about it back then. There's no Internet. I mean, you're 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 looking at the newspaper and pulling out clippings and things like that. But I went through the background check, did the whole application process, and I got a form letter in the mail basically telling me that I made it through, but that there was a hiring freeze. Oh, no. Yeah. So they were like, you know, you can you're on the list somewhere. You can check back in six months. You know, very vague. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm living at home. Right. With my parents, which is not the most fun when you're just graduated college. So, no, I'm like, I really need a job. I I don't want to wait around to see if they're going to have a job for me, even though that would be really awesome. So I went and met with the recruiter again. I was clipping ads out of the newspaper because to your young listeners, that's what we used to have to do. (laughs) And I found this recruiter in Chicago. I will never forget her, Beverly Von Winkler. And yeah, quite a name, right? (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't Um, forget that either. (laughs) Yeah. And she happened to be in the same sorority as me, which is one of those just coincidental things. So she decided she liked me for no reason, really. There was absolutely no reason other than I could type really fast because I had taken a typing class in high school, because that was required back in the day. And I actually I, did computer typing class as well. Oh, well, you for know the what? computer, though. No, but I have to tell you, I am so efficient because I type so freaking fast all the time. It's actually served me incredibly well. So I'm really happy about that. But anyway, she was like, oh, wow, you type really well. I think you should be in advertising. And I was like, what? And she's like, yes, I'm going to send you on this interview. I think you'll be great. Just go on the interview and see what happens. And I was like, okay. So I literally went on this interview, had no idea about advertising or anything about agencies or any of that. And they offered me a job to be a receptionist on the spot. Literally, we're like, can you start tomorrow? You have a pulse pulse and you can type. (laughs) And I was like, all right. And so that's what happened. So I started at this very small agency in Chicago 
And I really loved it. I love the creativity. I love the culture. And I kind of worked my way up from a receptionist over, you know, two and a half, three years. And I left as an account executive. And that was fantastic. In two to three years, you just said? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, so was it just it. on the job kind of experience that projected you? Yeah. So what happened was it was a small agency and I worked on the Pizza Hut account. And it was regional Pizza Hut. And they've been struggling for as long as I can ever remember, right? Back then they were struggling. Now they're struggling. It's the whole thing. I'm actually surprised they're still in business, but that's, yeah. <laughs> so anyways, yeah. So it was one of those things where, you know, you started as I was a receptionist. And then six months later, they made me an account coordinator. And then I was, you know, assistant account executive. And then they made me an account executive. And then after I'd been there, you know, I think it was about almost three years. I was like, you know what, this is great, but I've worked on Pizza Hut for this whole time. I really would like to go somewhere a little bigger, you know, with some clients that are a bit more sort of, you know, blue chip type clients. And so I went to Ogilvy and that's where I met my husband. Awesome. So then from there, he got the opportunity to go to New York. He was in advertising as well then? So he was in advertising as well, although he's three years younger than me. So at that time, let's see, he would have been 23, 24, and mm-hmm. I was 27. So I was like a level above him from a, you know, role perspective. Okay. He was an account exec and I was an account supervisor. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so we got the opportunity to go to New York. He did because the company was going to transfer him. And they basically said to me, you know, you can go and interview there, too. And I'm like, oh, it's too close to home. You know, I don't want I don't, I don't want to work in the same account as, as my boyfriend. Just too, 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 too much. So I came out and interviewed at a bunch of different agencies and ended up getting a couple different job offers and decided to go work at Gray, which was sort of one of the large but boring. The reputation at the time was like working for an insurance agency. It was like, even though it's advertising, it was sort of like the very steady, boring, strategic, not creative agency. Mm -hmm. But the benefit of working at that place was I was going to work on Procter & Gamble, which, you know, working on P&G at the time was like a feather in your cap. It was like they were considered to be top tier marketers and really good at, you know, just all the basics. So it was really good training. So, so it's a good foundation for you. Yeah. It's like taking your medicine. I'm going to go do it <laughs> and it'll be fine. And I did it for a year. I hated it, but I did it for a year. I learned what I needed to learn and I moved on. That's funny. Yeah. So then you guys were in New York and, uh, so you were there for a year and then did you plan to transition to another company or what was your next step? So I was at Gray and I just was so stifled by the incredible lack of creativity that I wanted to go somewhere completely opposite, somewhere uber creative. So, you know, I do my research and I find the most creative agency that I think existed at the time is BBDO. And they're still super, super creative. They're known for that. And I decided that's where I want to go. So I actually met a recruiter who had an in there and they were hiring for the Tam Brands account, which was Tampex Tampons. Familiar. (laughs) Really exciting business. And I interviewed and got the job. So I went and worked there and I ended up working there almost 10 years. Wow. Not on that account. account. I actually, what happened actually is kind of one of these things that happens in advertising a lot. I go there and the first day I start, my boss says to me, oh, by the way, we have some news. I'm like, okay, what's going on? Oh, the account is in review. What do you mean the account's in review? You just hired me. Yeah, the client just told us the account's in review. And then we ended up losing the account three months later. So I was fortunate that they moved me over to another position. Because sometimes when that happens, if they don't have anything, you're sort of screwed. Mm -hmm. But they moved me over to another position in the agency. And then, you know, that was fine. And like I said, I, I stayed there for quite a long time. It was a good place to work, although it was very, when I was there, very male, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very testosterone driven. Yeah. 
So after that step, what was your next move? You said you were there for 10 years. And then did you go to work for another agency or what are they called? Sorry. Yeah. Agency. Ad agency. Ad yeah. agency. Yeah, I did. So after that, I felt like I was sort of hitting my head on the, 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 the glass ceiling, if you will, uh, because I had been kind of running business, but, you know, there was really nowhere for me to go above. And so I had an opportunity to go to another agency and, and kind of help rebuild the L'Oreal account. Um, and I love the idea of working on beauty because I had never really done beauty. I had done personal care. I'd launched Gillette Venus and a bunch of Gillette products, but never really done proper beauty. So that was my first foray into learning the beauty industry, which is very quirky and very sort of its own beast. So that's what I did. L'Oreal was a very difficult client. I think anyone that's worked on that business knows what I mean. So I didn't love that, but I loved the beauty industry. Okay. Okay. What specifically about that? You know, it, it's a nice combination of what I would call head and heart, sort of like rational business sense meets mm -hmm. emotion. Because hmm. um, so much stuff in beauty sort of defies rational advertising, right? It's like you're appealing to people on this broader more intuitive perspective around connecting with them. Really, they want to feel great. You know, they just want to feel their best. It's more about confidence, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I really liked that side of it. I mean, beauty kind of is hope. It's sort of that optimism. And that was an interesting sort of space I felt. Yeah, I, I definitely could see that. I like the word to use, I think, hope, bold, confidence. I could definitely see that. Yeah. And I think some beauty brands really get it right, obviously, and some don't. But I yeah. think the ones that do can be very empowering and very uplifting for consumers as opposed to making you feel like, you know, you have to conform. So you went to work on the L'Oreal account. And were you doing that for a long time or did you kind of transfer to other beauty accounts? So that was the big account at, at the agency I worked at, which was called McCann Erickson. And if anyone's ever watched Mad Men, all these names are going to sound familiar because BBDO, McCann Erickson, and then I worked at J. Walter Thompson. They're all, they're all part of Mad Men because they've all been around a really long time. So I worked there for about a year because the culture was really difficult. It was really challenging. But when I left, I really liked beauty. I liked the industry. So I actually went to a smaller agency called Arnold that was really creative. Again, you'll see the theme. I keep going back to these really creative places where you can kind of let your mind be a bit liberated and stretch your creativity and have the freedom to do that. And so I went to this place called Arnold, which was headquartered in Boston, but had a New York office. And then I ended up running the New York office. And I stayed there for about eight years. And we grew the office from, well, we grew it about, let's see. About five times in size. Yeah, over the time that I ran it and got to be about 200, almost 225 people. And we picked up some beauty business along the way. So we worked on Clinique. We did all their global television. We did Vichy. We did La Roche-Posay. We did Nexus, St. Ives, Noxema. So that was super fun for me. Wow, that's a lot of brands that I've heard of <laughs> or have in my cabinet. <laughs> I know. I know. It's funny that that was sort of the beauty world. I mean, there's a stat I ran across recently. It was like seven companies own 182 of the world's most well-known beauty brands. Wow, that's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. But I think what's happened in recent years is the indie brands are really starting to make a huge you know, impact in the beauty business and inroads into that. And obviously now I'm a, I'm an indie brand. <laughs> what do you think contributes to that? I think that a lot of the big companies, whether it's, you know, Estee Lauder or uh, Shiseido or Clinique, or I mean, uh, not Clinique, Clinique's part of Estee Lauder or uh, L'Oreal. I think it's easier for them to buy indie brands than it is to create their own brands. They're just not set up mm. for building they're set up for scaling, 
You know, they're big global mm-hmm. operations that are really good at scale, but not so good at at the creativity part and the building part. So they tend to grow by acquisition, which for me at this point in my life is great because I've spent a lot of time building and learning and growing other people's beauty brands. And now I felt like, okay, now I want to create my own. I liked how you explained that in my mind just clicked. There's a podcast that I listened to. It's called How I Built This. And sometimes, have you heard of it? Yeah, I have. They have various companies on there, but a lot of beauty brands that I've heard on there, they are really creative people and they grow their business and it goes up until a point and then they usually will end up selling it. And the way you said it makes a lot more sense from from this side of it to see why the bigger companies are wanting to get it. I thought they would just want more of the just to have it, but the creative side that really clicks that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then I think they feel like they can take a business that's maybe a $50 million business that's maybe it's very US based and they can Mm -hmm. globalize it, right? They've got the infrastructure to make it global and turn it into a billion dollar business. And that's appealing for them. It's also appealing for the founder, right? Because, you know, why not? If you feel like you've got a great business, but you don't have the ability to do that, that that's a great solution. Awesome. So after you were at this agency, is this when you uh, transferred over to Masami or how did that, did you have Not something in between there? Right. I had something in between. So I was at Arnold and then it was great until they hired a global CEO who was awful mm-hmm. and somebody I just was not getting along with and was actually, you could literally see the business start to go down and I was just clashing with him constantly. And I just remember coming home one night and saying to my husband, oh, my God, this is torture. And he said to me, just quit. <laughs> yeah. And I was oh. like, I was like, what? What do you mean? Because I've always been such I've never had any breaks between any of my jobs since I started working ever. Mm-hmm. It was like I would literally quit on a Friday and start on a Monday. You know, it was that kind of thing. Yeah. And so I literally was like, wait, that's an option. I can do that. <laughs> I just hadn't occurred to me that I could quit without a job. So I did. And I actually packed up my children who at the time, oh my gosh, how old would they have been? I can't, I can't do the math. They, <laughs> they, they I don't know. It was probably, let's see, it was probably seven or eight years ago, packed them up, drove across the country. We have a house in Palm Springs, packed our two dogs, packed the kids and spent, you know, pretty much July and August out there. Mm-hmm. And when I was out there, I get a call from a friend of mine who I had known from BBDO. And he was like, hey, dude, I need help. And I'm like, <laughs> exactly. I was like, what? He's like, oh, my God, I just went to this, you know, to J. Walter Thompson and it's a mess and I really need help. And oh, my God, you, you got to come and help me out. And I'm thinking, I just left. I just need to decompress. I've never had time off like this, you know what I mean? Yeah. So basically I go and meet with them when we're back in New York and then that led to another meeting, which led to another, I mean, you know how this is going to go, mm-hmm. led to another meeting, led to another meeting. And after four or five months, okay, I now have a job <laughs> and I'm not sure it's a job I want, but they basically convinced me. Yeah. Slowly reeling you in. Yes. Over multiple drinks. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you need to take this job. I'm like, yeah, okay. (laughs) So I ended up taking the job at J. Walter Thompson. And it was really interesting. It was a very tough culture. It's a very old, large agency. So it's the oldest. It was the oldest advertising agency in the world. 154 years old, something like that. It's now gone because it's merged with another agency and that name, that brand name has disappeared, which is sad to me because that was iconic. But nonetheless, it was a big challenge to try to take a very large legacy type mentality and culture and try to modernize it. Because, you know, people get very set in their ways and the systems and the processes in place and the bureaucracy in place, you know what I mean? It's really hard to change that stuff. Change is hard. Change is incredibly hard. 
And this was an agency that was kicking and screaming. They did not want to change, even though they knew they had to. And you'd have these meetings with people and you'd explain things. And this is what we're going to do. And everybody would nod. And then it would go back to the way it was. And you'd go back in again and go, hey, guys, remember, we talked about this and this is what we're going to do. And they go, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. It's just what I used to call it is just the gravity. The gravity would pull you back down into this mire of complacency and status quo. And so it was really hard. Having said that, we actually were making a dent. We actually were starting to win new business. Things were starting to turn around. And then what happened, I don't know if you know this, but there was a huge public lawsuit. The global chief communication officer sued the global CEO, my direct boss. Both within your company. Yes. Within my company, it was a sexual harassment, sexual discrimination lawsuit. And we read about it in the New York Post. We didn't get any heads up. It was literally. Yeah. And. You can literally Google it now and find loads of articles because it hit Wall Street Journal, New York Times. It was everywhere. And it basically Mm -hmm. was the kickoff to the Me Too movement in advertising. Wow. So I was dealing with that. So basically what was a pretty hard but starting to turn around job became a, a really impossible job because suddenly I had this lawsuit and because I was running the New York headquarters And I was a woman and I was somebody who was probably the closest to the global CEO in a lot of ways in terms of his right hand. Yeah. I was dealing with a lot of the HR issues, legal issues, press issues, client issues. And my job became not super fun. Literally for two years, it was like I was not two years. Yeah, I was dealing with that. And it wasn't doing what I love to do. So I talked about the theme of creativity earlier. Yeah, I love I love to build brands, you know, I love to come up with ideas and and concepts and creative thinking and see the brands actually turn around and grow. And I wasn't able to do any of that because I was so focused on the problems that we were having. Yeah, the damage control. Yes, damage control, crisis communication, stop the bleeding, all that stuff. It just wears on you, you know, over time, you just start to feel like, oh, my God, this is what my life has become. I'm dealing with this day in, day out, and it is not fun. This week's sponsor is the Salvation Army of Oakbrook Terrace. This is the church that I grew up going to out in the suburbs of Chicago. The Salvation Army Oakbrook Terrace continues to work diligently during this COVID-19 pandemic. Staff and volunteers are on the front lines ensuring people and families in need receive critical food, home, and bill assistance. While costs and demand for these support services have gone up during the pandemic, the Salvation Army Oprah Terrace is committed to meeting the needs of the community. You can be a big part of these efforts. The Salvation Army Oprah Terrace has an online fundraiser and all money raised goes directly to the people impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Currently, they're at 78% of their goal, with $5,866 raised. Will you please take a moment and help them reach their $7,500 goal by donating online? Visit www.saobt.org backslash fundraise to give. All donations are tax deductible. Let's help the Salvation Army reach this goal today. Again, the website to visit and donate at is www.saobt.org backslash f-u-n-d-r-a-i-s-e. All right, let's get back to Lynn's story. It took me a while to come to the conclusion to leave. It wasn't like when I explained, oh, I could quit. It wasn't like that. I knew I could quit. Yeah. It was more that I felt responsibility for the people that work there. Mm-hmm. You know, as somebody who was trying to lead them through this horrible mess, I just felt like I can't leave people hanging. 
Yeah. You know, I can't be the one that then leaves and then they feel like, what's next? It took me two years to wrap my head around that and finally decide, okay, yeah, I really do need to leave. It's just not good for me. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I kind of had enough of advertising because I just felt like I'd done what I wanted to do in the business. I'd run what I wanted to run. You know, I just wasn't interested in taking on a bigger management job because that just wasn't fulfilling. And I wanted to get back to doing what I loved, which was brand building. So hence, now I'm an entrepreneur and I've launched a brand. (laughs) So can you kind of walk us through how that got started, because I was reading a little bit of the story of the brand on the website. And so I know it starts with someone I believe his name's James. Yes. Um, so, can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah. So this is all serendipity. And I'm a big believer in serendipity and karma, because it just feels like that's how the world works. But what happened was, I'm now running a brand consultancy, I'm working with a lot of startups. And my husband was at Publicis, which is another big ad agency, and he was running the global Citibank account at the time. Wait, sorry, can I pause you and ask you yeah. a question really quick? So were you working at another agency or had you started your own? I couldn't really I, tell. I started my own brand consultancy. So I was oh, doing wow. that. Yeah. And I was helping startups, which I found really fulfilling, mm-hmm. helping them with their brand story, just go to market strategy, their kind of that basic foundational strategy work. But my husband was a publicist and there was a guy in his team named James who was a Uber producer. And James says to Bill, my husband, hey, can I take you through this project that I've been working on, like as my passion project, as a side project, I've been working on it for 10 years and I would love to get your feedback. And Bill wow. was like, yeah, sure. What is it? And he goes, oh, it's this hair care brand. Nobody knew he was doing this, by the way. He spent all- For 10 years, a decade? 10 years. 10 years. And by the way, he spent all of his discretionary income, all of it, on the R&D for these products. Oh, my it's goodness. Crazy. This is serious passion. When you see somebody that does that for that long, and he's yeah. married, he's, we'll get into this in a minute, but he's married to a man named Masa, hence Masami. And, yep. So, anyway, Bill says to James, I don't know a thing about beauty, but Linda's, you should talk to her. So, Bill says to me, hey, I want you to meet with this guy on my team. He's been working on these hair care products. And honestly, my reaction, an eye roll. I was (laughs) like, seriously? Because Bill has introduced me to several people over the years, and I've hired many of them, and I've had to fire almost all of them. We just have different barometers as to what we look for in talent, right? So I was very much like, really? Okay, fine. I'm going to waste an hour of my time, but I'll fine. I'll do it. (laughs) That was my attitude. I know. I'm kind of cynical. So anyway, so I meet with James and he starts telling me the story of how he's going to Japan and he's married to Masa and they found this ingredient and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm starting to go, oh, that sounds really interesting. So he's starting to hook me in. Mm -hmm. And then he starts telling me about super hydration and the products don't have any bad ingredients or super clean. And I'm like, huh, that's really hard to do. How did you do that? Then he starts telling me about the chemist that he found and all this other stuff. And what really got me, though, is he gave me the products to use. And I was like, damn, they're really good. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, because I've I've worked again. I've worked in the industry. I've worked on a lot of crappy products. And I was like, shit, these products work. So that was sort of what did it. I think that's a good thing. It is a good thing. It is a good thing because. The proof is in the pudding, right? Yeah. So once that happened, I was like, shit, I'm going to have to do this. We're going to have to go into business together and do this. And Because he had the formulations about 80% done, but he didn't have anything else. He didn't have a brand name. He didn't have a go-to-market strategy. He didn't have packaging. He had nothing else. He didn't know how to do any of that. So when you were meeting with him, was he wanting to consult with you, pick your brain, or was he meeting with you with the intention of trying to go into business with you? I think he thought when we met, we clicked. You know how certain people you just have a chemistry with? Yeah. And he and I just clicked and we just thought, damn, we got to do this Mm -hmm. because he knew this is the beauty of it. It's serendipity. And like I said, karma, you know, his skill set is in the sort of R&D space and innovation space. And my skill set is in the brand and marketing space. 
And if you think of it as a Venn diagram, there's a part that overlaps, but there's a big chunk of what we each do that doesn't overlap. And it makes it great because, you know, when it came to the brand name, he had a brand name already. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think I've ever told him, actually. It was I, I think I said it was it wasn't okay. I'm being really harsh. It wasn't terrible. It just uh-huh. wasn't fitting for what the brand story was. Gotcha. Like, so the brand name that he had come up with was called R-E-V-U. R-E-V.U. How do you, how do you say that? Oh, like, rev- oh, okay. But R-E-V.U. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Wait. it has nothing to do with anything. Why did he think that was a good name? Or do you because not know? I think he liked the idea of review your hair. I do get it. But again, I come from the world of purpose and branding. And, you know, so we really went back to the roots of the brand and said, okay, what is the brand? Mm -hmm. What is the story we're trying to tell? And what's our purpose? And our purpose really became very clear. We're a brand that's about clean beauty, Mm -hmm. uh, but clean beauty that's high performing. Then we need to embrace that and take it even a step further and be pro-ocean. We actually started the Masumi Institute, which is a nonprofit that gives back to ocean research in Japan. That's the core piece of our brand. And when we started thinking about the branding, it was really clear that Masa, who's James' husband and really is the muse of the brand. I mean, he's the inspiration for the ingredient, for the whole health benefits. It just became so obvious that the name had to be something with him. Mm -hmm. And then when we landed on Masami, it actually means truly beautiful in Japanese. And that's where the main ingredients are coming from, correct? Japan? Yes. Our main ingredient is called Mikabu. It's a seaweed that grows in Northeast Japan. And we actually get it from a family owned seaweed company that we have a relationship through Masa and they harvest it, they dry it, they powder it down, and they ship it to us fresh. Wow. Yeah. So before we go more into the product side, I just want to connect the dots for the listeners. So you met with them, and they explained the spiel. You guys clicked and connected. And then did you just immediately go into business together and have your consulting business as well? Or what happened with that? So... It's a great question because it's not all that simple. So what happened was my husband had left his advertising job around the same time I did. Mm -hmm. And he started a luxury incubator. It's called House LaRouche. And we were early investors in a high-end chocolate cannabis company in Colorado Mm. already. So when this happened, I basically went to him and said, all right, this has to be your next investment. We have to take this on. So he was like, all right. So there are actually three brands in his portfolio. There's 1906, which is the chocolate cannabis company. There's Masami. And then there's a brand called Ilda Nature, which is another brand of ours. That's a luxury home fragrance company with a beeswax candle as the main product. Anyway, that's a whole different story. But but that's what happened was we basically became the lead investors, the only investors. So when we talked to James, it was like, listen, we're willing to go into partnership with you. We will invest in the business. He'd already put a lot of his own money in the business. Yeah. We'll be your partners. And so that's what we did. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you for connecting the dots. I was just kind of personally curious of how you guys both got there. So your official position is the CEO, correct? Yes. And then co-founder. Yeah. So then your husband then consults or how does that work? He's a member of the company, but he's not involved. He's really just, again, he's the money guy. Gotcha. Yeah. So that works out pretty well, actually. Yeah. I was just trying to connect connect all the dots there. Thank you. Okay. So back to Masami, I just wanted to get all my ducks in a row. You said the main ingredient, how do you say it? Makibu. Makabu. Yeah, (laughs) tricky. So you get that from seaweed, seaweed grown from a family in Japan, a family seaweed farm? Yeah, they have, that's basically a seaweed company. Okay. Yeah. And that ingredient is known for basically super hydration. It acts like a sponge to your hair. 
-hmm. And we put it in our products in powder form. So actually, oh, here's something for you to do. When you look at your styling cream or your conditioner, Uh you'll see little green specks. Is that the seaweed? Yes. Ooh, that's really fun. Yeah. So you can actually see it in there. It's not super, super obvious, Uh but it, but you'll see it. And the reason we do it that way is because we can get more active ingredient in the formulations. So it really works like this sponge, but without being heavy, because this is one of the challenges. It's already hard enough doing clean beauty that works, mm-hmm. high performing clean beauty. That's one challenge as it is. But doing super hydration and lightweight, that's another challenge because we didn't want the products to be super heavy. A lot of products that are super moisturizing if you've ever done those super moisturizing hair masks or whatever, they're heavy. Yeah, and they're like, very thick and creamy. Exactly. And my hair, unlike yours, my hair is super thin and I just have thin, straight, kind of blah hair. And if I use those thick, heavy products, my hair will look greasy after. Mm-hmm. It'll be flat. It may be hydrated, but it will be flat <laughs> and greasy. Yeah. And so that was the other challenge we wanted to solve is how do you create hydration without giving you that flat greasy effect, but giving you a lightweight volumizing effect. And this ingredient allows us to do that. Wow. It's kind of interesting that you're about the hydration aspect, because right now in Chicago, it's kind of dry right now. And usually when I go into my office, I always have to put lotion on just because especially the office is extra dry. But I was noticing this morning when I got to the office, I was like, wow, my hands still feel really hydrated because I took a shower this morning. So I put the hair product in and then I smelled my hands. I was like, what's going on with these? And I think it was I didn't use even that much product, but I used my hands to put it through my hair and it still felt like my hands were hydrated, even though it's not lotion for my hair. Does that make sense? It totally does because we actually have some people that use our styling cream. They'll put it in their hair and then they'll rub it in their hands. And I've had to say to people, you know, it's not lotion, right? (laughs) And they're like, yeah, but it works really well. Like it's lotion because it's not sticky or greasy. So it actually does absorb into your skin. But yeah, that is absolutely true. Yes, it worked for me as a pleasant benefit. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. Because, you know, a lot of times if you try to use a gel or any other kind of mousse or pomade or whatever, you mm-hmm. just have to rinse it off after because it's your hands are gunky. Yeah, it's like a, th- like a thick film is covering them. I always have to wash my hands after I usually right. put my hair product in. But with this, it's the opposite. You literally can just rub it in. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That was a great effect. And it also, too, I don't know the smell. I couldn't really tell what it was. It smells great. But is that the seaweed? It doesn't smell like any seaweed that I've ever had. But it smells good. Yeah. We wanted the scent to be gender neutral because the products were created to purposely be gender neutral, like the packaging as well. You know, we didn't want it to feel too feminine. It's just a simple green bottle. Yeah. Almost like emeraldy green. Yeah, exactly. But the scent is the naturally derived scent, by the way, which a lot of fragrances have phthalates in them. Ours does not. Mm-hmm. It's a naturally derived scent from Casablanca lilies, actually. Mm-hmm. And the reason we did that is because when James first started out working, he worked at Harvey Nichols in London. And his job was in the PR team. He had to go get the flowers every week that would be on display in the store. And he used to pick out these Casablanca lilies. So he just really became addicted to the smell. And, you know, people, it's funny, they can't place the smell, but they really like it. It's just a fresh, clean smell. It almost reminded me, this is no shade or anything, but there was this lotion, cucumber something from Bath and Body Works. And this woman growing up would wear it all the time. And it kind of had a touch of that smell in it. So it like reminded me of her. But then I didn't smell fully like that. So I couldn't really place what it was exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Like I said, it's more of a clean, fresh scent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People really like it, but you're right. Like almost no one can place exactly what it is. I've yeah. never had somebody say to me, that's Casablanca Lilies. <laughs> it's like, I knew it was like kind of fresh something, but I couldn't figure out what it was. I really appreciate that because when it comes to perfumes or a different sense in products, a lot of times I find them really 
overpowering or just really fake smelling. And especially if it's going on my face or in my hair, then I'm going to be smelling that the rest of the day. Yeah. And I've gone through a lot of products that maybe it worked okay, but in the end, I just stopped using them because of the smell. Yeah, you're not alone. I think that's pretty common. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, in terms of the products, I know that I've been using the shampoo and the conditioner, the hair shine serum, and... The one that comes in the circle, the cream. Yeah, the styling cream, yep. Mm -hmm. Are those four products your core products? Do you have any other ones or is it just that's the main line? That's the main line. I mean, we just launched in February, so. Oh, wow. I didn't really, I thought it had been at least a couple of years. I didn't realize it was so soon. No, we literally just launched. So yeah, those are our first products, but we already have three other products in the pipeline. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's been pretty cool. So those will hopefully, I was hoping to get them out by the end of the year, but given everything going on with COVID, I think it's likely going to be early next year. Do you have a specific product that you enjoy using the most or that you noticed after using really did a lot for your hair that no other product really was able to do for you? I mean, for me, the styling cream is the disruptive product because I need a little bit of manageability for my flyaways Mm -hmm. and I wear my hair up. I usually wear it with hair sticks, basically like a loose bun in the back that you just shove some sticks in to keep it in place. Okay. That's what that is. Yeah. But it's easy. It just looks a little nicer than a ponytail, Mm -hmm. but I don't want frizz and flyaways. So what I like to do is when my hair is a little towel dried, I'll put the styling cream in because again, it, it doesn't get hard or mm-hmm. crusty or chunky and it doesn't leave flakes in your hair. So you can just kind of put it in and then it just keeps it in place. It just sort of keeps you know, your hairstyle in place. It's like a light to medium hold. So it's not a heavy hold, you know? Yeah. Well, I think just overall, when I've been using the product, it does its job, but you don't notice it. Does that make yeah, sense? Exactly. That's a great way to describe it, actually. You're right. I really enjoy that about it because a lot of times, if a product is doing its job, it may be permanent or be more like sculpting your hair. If you, does right. that make sense? Yes. I like your thought. It's more invisible. You don't really see that there's a product in there, but your hair looks great. Yes. And, and that's always my ben- goal. <laughs> exactly. And then you get the benefit of it just feels healthier and hydrated. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask, but I think I already know the answer, but I just wanted to clarify. So this hairline is for almost any hair type. Is that correct? Yeah, we designed it because one of the things that I think we were sort of pushing off of in the industry is this proliferation of skews and choice, meaning variants. So if you look at almost any major hair care brand, they've grown their business by creating more shelf space, by creating more product lines. Yeah. So in other words, they've dissected the category in a way that it's not consumer friendly at all. You, the consumer, have to choose between do you want shine? Do you want volume? Do you want healthy Mm -hmm. hair? Do you want color treated hair? Where our products work for all that. You shouldn't have to choose. So that was our philosophy, too. We don't want people to have to have trade-offs or compromises. We want a product that works for virtually everybody. I will say virtually because I will say we have some people that are hardcore lovers of our product. Mm -hmm. And then every now and then I'll get somebody who just doesn't work for them. You know, the products just don't work for them. Is that a specific hair type? Just curious. I don't know because it tends to work better for people that have more needs. If your hair is super dry or super curly or super thin, you're going to see and feel the performance more. I think for people whose hair is pretty good already, they just don't see the uplift as much. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or if they're using a really high-end product already and they're expecting it to be even that much more, it may not have that performance uptick that they're wanting. But I will say the people that seem to be the most satisfied are people with thinning hair, curly hair, colored hair. Pregnancy is another one because it's clean beauty. It's safe to use when you're pregnant. People don't realize when you're using shampoo and conditioner, you're rubbing it into your scalp. Skincare people get 
that your skin's absorbing it and you don't mm -hmm. want toxins. But in shampoo, they kind of think it's topical, right? Like, well, it's just sort of you're rinsing so it you're off. You're really massaging it in there. You're massaging it in there. And your scalp is actually one of the most absorbent parts of your body. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. So it's really, really not good to be putting toxins into your hair care. And 90% of products in the U.S. market have toxins. I think for my hair care journey, let's call it, I've been doing a little bit of research I mentioned before about the curly hair method, and it gave a list of things not to use to make sure read the back of the label and make sure like no silicone, phthalates, sulfates, yeah, sulfates, yeah, all of the eights and yeah. things. But when it's really hard because products that people have recommended. I would turn over the bottle or Google the ingredients and a lot of them, most of them are no's. Or sometimes it's kind of tricky the way that it's advertised, at least for me on the bottle, it'll say maybe like no phthalates, no sulfates or something. But then I read on the back and there's some kind of cousin of it on there or something else on there that is on my no-no list. And it's so frustrating and really hard. The other thing that makes yeah. it impossible as a consumer is that there are no standards. So what we do is we just decided we're going to follow the EU because the EU is way stricter than the U.S. The EU mm -hmm. bans 1,500 ingredients, and the EU is also very similar to whole food standards. But you can go crazy looking at what Sephora defines as clean beauty, what Creta defines as clean beauty, what whoever defines, you know, like... Yeah. And some of the stuff is just not... Definitive. I mean, you know, there's research on silicones that's mixed. Is it mm -hmm. bad? Is it good? Well, it's not clear. So it just makes it hard as a consumer. But I would say for anyone yeah, trying yeah. to just clean up their beauty routine, start with the basics. At least get rid of the basic stuff. Don't have parabens. Don't have phthalates. Don't have sulfates. And if you're going to have a fragrance, this is the tricky thing about fragrance is that brands are only required to put the word fragrance on their bottle but not define what's in the fragrance. Mm -hmm. A lot of fragrances have phthalates. Our fragrance is phthalate-free and naturally derived. So you want a fragrance that's at least not synthetic and chemical and has bad shit in it too, if you can find that out. If you can't, you can't. Because again, a lot of brands aren't transparent about that. We started putting it on our label actually, because I feel like people want to know. Started putting what on your label? Defining our fragrance. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I think as a consumer and especially as in the past few years, that has become more important to me as I, I mean, I don't feel like I'm looking super old, but I'm trying to preserve that is slow, the anti-aging starting now. So I've just been trying to be more conscientious of the ingredients of things that are like coming into contact and that, you know, you said about the shampoo rubbing in your head, like yeah. that is a big part. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you about Masami that you would like to highlight or share? I mean, I feel like we covered a lot. I will yeah. say one thing that I will highlight, we are launching a crowdfunding campaign starting on May 1. Ooh. And the reason we're doing it is because, again, given our purpose around being pro-ocean, we wanted to create a sustainable package the beauty industry is so bad about contributing to the plastic problem as mm -hmm. an industry. And it's hard when you're in the shower, you're a brand that's in the shower because you can't have glass, you know, yeah. break the shower. So we did a lot of research on different materials. We landed on a large size ceramic refillable bottle okay. that you can buy cardboard cartons of product to refill into. And we're going to be launching it on iFundWomen starting May 1st. Awesome. I'll be sure to put all the details in the show notes so our awesome. listeners can click into that. That's great. Thank you. I think that's very interesting. It's very true. There's so many plastic bottles that we have in our bathrooms that sometimes it's harder to figure out how to do all the recycling for them. It is. It's a real challenge and there's just so much of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've actually put on our website the information for Target, because Target has a great recycle where you can go into the front of the store and bring your stuff that you don't know what to do with. If your local municipality doesn't recycle certain types of plastic, you can bring them there. Oh, um, and they, and, yeah, and they will make sure they get into the right place. 
but it's tricky because not everywhere takes everything and it's hard to know what to do to be more sustainable. But one solution is just stop the plastic, you know? Yeah. So we'll see if it works. I don't know. I'm optimistic, but we'll see if consumers like it, you know? Yeah, that'd be kind of an interesting trade. You said it was made out of, it was ceramic. It's ceramic because we struggled with metal because of rust. We struggled with bamboo and some other materials, but there's mold and there's other stuff that happens. So we wanted something that felt like it could last three years. Mm -hmm. Now, yes, you could break it, but the idea of, okay, you break a ceramic bottle, it's going to break into chunks and pieces, not shards of glass that could cut you. Yeah. In the shower, especially. Yeah. In the shower. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of damage. Exactly. Before I let you go, I want to pivot and ask you a couple of other questions. So I wanted to ask you if somebody, if a listener is listening and is like, wow, this career track, this creativeness for advertising agencies, this sounds really interesting. What advice would you give as a next step for somebody who's interested in learning more and exploring this as a possible career option? I would say just be a sponge and network like crazy You know, when I was sort of coming up in the business, it just wasn't a thing where you would just reach out to people and ask for help. But I feel like people are generous most of the time and people will help if you ask. And so I think, you know, you have to be informed and do your research. You can't just, you know, ask blindly. But if you are genuinely interested in either mentorship or help or connections or just want to pick somebody's brain, just ask. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Next step advice. That's great. And the next question is, what do you wish you had known when you had started out in your career? Or maybe you heard some advice that you heard, but you didn't hear maybe loud enough. Is there anything that comes to mind, something that you you wish you had heard from the beginning? I mean, I don't know if there's anything specific, but I will say when I sort of started out in the business and I sort of alluded to this earlier, it was a very testosterone heavy business. Mm -hmm. And there were multiple times in my career where I was sort of told, just suck it up, just deal with it. Whether it was a situation that was a little uncomfortable or I felt someone was taking advantage. And, you know, I, I think now that wouldn't be acceptable. If that happened today, I think somebody would say that's BS. I'm not Mm going to talk about that. But it was really hard back then. You know, it's hard to put today's values on yesterday's time of, you know, career because that was just what was accepted then. But it really did hold me back in a lot of ways. I mean, I should have left BBDO after five years, not 10, you know, because my career didn't continue to go up. Mm -hmm. They kind of kept me locked in in a certain place because it was good for them. So I would say anyone kind of starting out, don't let yourself get pigeonholed like that. If you don't feel comfortable about the situation you're in, if you don't feel that the culture supports you, if you don't feel that you can grow, don't stay, move on. You know, there's better places out there that will give you that Awesome. That's some good advice. I think it's sometimes hard when you're stagnant in a position and comfortable because yeah. it's uncomfortable to go into the unknown to maybe something better. It is hard because, yeah, you kind of think, well, it's pretty good. And maybe I am being too, you know, idealistic or whatever. But you know what? You know, your life is short. And if you're not getting what you need, then there are so many job opportunities that can give you that. It's just not worth it, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I have one final question that we ask everybody on the podcast, and that is, what is fueling you today? What's fueling your passion? So this could be anything from a new coffee drink or a new food recipe, a new TV show, maybe one of your new products. What's fueling you today? Well, I'm really been super excited about all these female founder groups that I've connected with because I never knew they existed or I kind of knew they existed, but I was never part of them before. And that's been really inspiring because I now have a network of female founder, I would say friends, colleagues, Mm -hmm. you know, just support. So that would be 
an obvious one. But then, you know, TV shows, I mean, Ozark. <laughs> oh, my dad loves that one. That's on my list to start during the, oh, this quarantine. It's so good. And this last season was so good. So, yeah. Yeah, we've been binge watching like everybody else. You kind of have to these days, right? Yeah, totally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and just sharing with us your story and your passion and about Masami. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It was really fun. Friends, I loved our conversation with Lynn. It was incredible to see how Lynn began her career in advertising by chance through her speed typing skill set. Through advertising, Lynn was able to develop and discover her other passions of brand building and entrepreneurship. It was great to have Lynn walk us through her story of becoming a co-founder of Masami, as well as a little bit of insight into the clean beauty market. I hope that we are all encouraged today about how Lynn discovered and began her passions of advertising, brand building, and entrepreneurship. My prayer is that you would consider what God has for you and what he might be leading you to. Hey friends and listeners, I just wanted to thank you so much for giving the No Wrong Turns pod a listen today. Can you please help us out and consider leaving a rating or review on one of our platforms on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or YouTube? Basically, whichever platform you're listening from today. This helps other people be able to see the podcast when they're searching in the app. Thanks in advance. Our episode was edited by our podcast editor, Sophia Bote, social media managed by Olivia Bote, and you can see our show notes for our music credits.